Welcome everybody to today's edition of Cascadian Views. Uh, Brock is out, so while the cat is away, the mice will play. Socialist takeover. Socialist takeover, <laughs> that's right. The People's Republic of Cascadian Views will now convene. I'm joined by our representative from the People's Republic of Vermont, Chris. Hi everyone. And the Socialist Republic of New Bellingham, Dan. Howdy, howdy. Power to the workers. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, let's see. Dan, it sounded like you had a decent I itinerary for a setup. Uh, where do yeah. you want to start? Well, let's, uh, I guess, roll in with what is most recent. We're recording on uh, Saturday afternoon, and last night the Pacific Northwest made some national news uh, with some incident out at SeaTac. A, uh, an Alaska Airlines uh, Horizon flight was uh, stolen, I guess. That's really the uh, only uh, way it can be described. A plane was taken off the runway by a, uh, it sounds like it was an employee of, the comp of Alaska Airlines, an engineer, and he was able to get it off the ground and get it flying and uh, flew around Puget Sound for, it looked like it was... I want to say uh, it was about an hour, hour and a half? Yeah, I yeah, he kept I, going for some time. Yeah. They jet escort. Yeah. Well, because at one point he'd uh, flown fairly close to uh, Joint, ba Lewis, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. And they were trying to talk him into landing out there. And uh, it was kind of one of the more darker moments where he uh, just says, I don't know if I'm going to land there. I think those guys might rough me up. Like, oh, you got to land somewhere, buddy. But, yeah. Yeah, so and then his debate up. about, like, oh, they're going to really lock me up forever if I land, right? And air traffic yeah. control's like, uh... Let's not think about that right now. Yeah, do, the important thing is confidence. to get on the ground. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, still some speculation as to what was going on here, but uh, it's, I guess the consensus is that this is a guy who was clearly having some emotional problems, uh, is being described as, quote, quiet guy, kind of a loner, or at least by his uh, co-workers. And it sounds like he, uh, I think... Depression is what they're saying here, but I'm not sure that there's been any kind of definitive statement on that as to what kind of motivation was going on here. But at least, yeah, we spent some time listening to the audio of his conversations with uh, air traffic control. And yeah, it was some pretty dark, pretty resigned to uh, not living through the incident statements that uh, – this guy was making through uh, a good portion of his flight. And then, yeah, he ended up crashing on an island in South Puget Sound. And, yeah, I don't think there's any chance that he would have survived that. Yeah, definitely not. It, yeah, and that, that seemed to be the goal from, from the beginning, from the onset. Yeah. Yeah, landed on uh, the center of Ketron Island, uh, just south of uh, Tacoma. Right. It sounds like, thankfully, um, he did not hit anybody, because there are some homes in the area. Um, it looks like he narrowly avoided, I think, where 
folks' homes were, so that is, you know, probably the luckiest part out of all of this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that he was the only one that ended up ultimately being harmed. Yeah. I mean, still a, yeah, a pretty sad incident, but uh, yeah, at least it could have been much, much worse. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's most recent. And what was going on last night? Uh, we've got Chris here, so we thought it might be a good time to talk a little bit about what's been happening with the Manafort trial. And I think probably one of the stranger angles is the uh, behavior of the judge, uh, T.S. Ellis. Uh, so, uh, Chris, you want to take it away? Get us uh, an update on what's been going on there this week. Yeah, well, there are two separate categories of bizarre thing that have happened with that <laughs> Mm-hmm. happened with that trial recently so there have been a couple of incidences well there have been numerous incidences where the judge has been very grouchy with the prosecution and had kind of outbursts in the courtroom um, but there's been two where he actually backed off apologized and told the jury to disregard what he'd said after the prosecution basically pointed out we're doing this because in one case we're doing this because you told us to earlier <laughs> they had the transcript read back and in the other case, it was, this is one of the charges that we had filed from the beginning. That's why we're talking about it. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, has a story come out? I haven't seen one. Is this guy just known for this sort of thing? And it just happens that he's finally been given a really high-profile case, and now people are like, oh, dear God, he's too old for the bench? <laughs> Or did he, like, just get too old for the bench last month? Or <laughs> just, just like, oh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, what I've heard is that he has a reputation for really keeping things moving in the courtroom. Um, Seems which to hold has certainly been so on far. display here. But <laughs> I mean, he's definitely keeping things moving. I, I wouldn't yeah. say in an orderly fashion, but they are moving. Yeah, from what I've been reading, I guess, uh, from attorneys that have practiced in his courtrooms that, yeah, he's kind of a cranky guy and doesn't, uh, yeah, doesn't really want to put up with a lot of, uh, you know, going through slowly, methodically, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, he's pushing the case through very quickly. he's a judge who's not much for that whole law thing. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds about right. Procedure and precedent. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what the liberal cucks think the law is about. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's but terrible. If got a yeah, it really point. is. What was that, Chris? I said, if you've got a gavel, you've got to use it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's true. I mean, all he has is robes and a gavel. I mean, it's the only tool he's got, so he's got to use it for every problem that he has. That's right. These damn kids won't get out of whatever room people keep wheeling him into. <laughs> he doesn't know why he's there, but people keep talking to him at length about things he really doesn't care about. Who Who are you? You don't look like this courtroom sketch at all. <laughs> What's going on? Where am I? Yeah, yeah, he's... He's been this cranky guy through a whole bunch of these proceedings, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think that he first really kind of came to attention, everyone's attention is like, what's the deal with this judge back in, I want to say May or June, when uh, Manafort's lawyers had the uh, motion to dismiss. 
and he just couldn't help himself. He just goes out and opines for you know the better part of half an hour about how he doesn't think there should be a special counsel at all, and <laughs> how this whole prosecution was just you know nonsense, and on and on and on. And then finally, yeah, he rules in uh, the prosecution's favor and doesn't dismiss the case, but just kind of goes out of his way to talk about how much he doesn't think there should be a case at all. And then uh, last month, uh, when uh, Manafort had uh, petitioned to delay starting the trial and kind of you know, admittedly put up some shenanigans about how, oh, you know, the trial venue has been moved and he couldn't talk to his lawyers and all this stuff. And then uh, the uh, Mueller's office, you know, came in with all these uh, recordings from him talking to people besides his lawyer about how great he had it at his jail and how he just you know was going to park there. He was talking to his attorneys all the time and using email and doing all kinds of things he wasn't supposed to do. And so the judge not only de- denied his uh, motion to delay starting the trial, but also moved him over to a much less comfortable facility, facility in uh, Alexandria to you know, wait out for the rest of the trial. So, yeah, he's just... I wouldn't say quite an equal opportunity crank, but he has at least he, he's he's done nasty stuff to both sides. Yeah, yeah, they never so, really are quite equal opportunity, but he's definitely gotten a few jabs to the other side. Exactly. Yeah, and just this bizarre behavior this week, you know, making you know, about making eye contact with him and things like that. Just this <laughs> yes, really that's bizarre, right. unprofessional <laughs> stuff. Don't look at me. Yeah. So Why are you looking thing, at me? <laughs> yeah, that struck me as particularly odd. That I, I mean, that's not a yeah. thing I would put up with somebody saying to me at my job, and I am a lowly <laughs> customer service representative, essentially. Like, God, but uh, no, that's that's messed up, man. That was crazy. Are you crying? Are you going to cry in my court? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. all of this, all of this would be more than enough to keep us entertained. But then Friday, something, there were signs Friday that something is going on with the jury. Yeah. Uh, so what happened was he had two different uh, conferences. He had one conference with the lawyers from both sides. And then about 15 minutes later, he called the lawyers from both sides over and courtroom security, and then he said he had to leave for to consider an issue, and he would leave for 15 minutes. So he ended up leaving not to his chambers, but through the door that actually goes to the area where the jury was. They hadn't called in the jury yet, and he wasn't gone for 15 minutes. He was gone for more like an hour. When he finally showed up back in the courtroom, he brought in the jury, and he gave them a very stern lecture about not discussing the trial with anyone, including each other and commanding them to keep an open mind. Hmm. Yeah. I am so terrified. This is going to end up in a mistrial and the red caps are just going to be delighted. Yeah. I Um, mean, I, how could anybody not contest these proceedings? Like regardless of, what his decision is like he's crazy yeah <laughs> he's yeah there's definitely going to be grounds for appeal you know just so much kind of strange behavior 
that I expect if Manafort is committed, uh, convicted, rather, he's going to be appealing this decision for sure. And yeah. uh, I think it's very unfortunate because it's it'll be hard to it'll be hard to mount a case that his behavior was really prejudicial to Manafort, but mm-hmm. it will be easy to mount a case that something irregular was going on in that courtroom. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm trying to think of any other news on the legal front this week. I mean, there's still negotiations between uh, Trump's attorneys and Mueller for a uh, an interview with uh, Trump right. and lots of dispute over what the scope of that could be. Uh, I mean, do you get any strong feeling one way or the other that this is actually going to happen? Or I, I The thing that kind of comes to mind for me is that if it doesn't happen soon, then it's just going to be too close to the election. And I don't yeah. think either side will be willing to proceed with that. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, really, we go much past Labor Day and suddenly we're dealing with the uh, norms that uh, Comey chose to disregard that uh, this kind of stuff in the eve, immediate eve of an election is a uh, improper uh, meddling or influence on our democracy. And so everything would kind of get put on hold until November 7th. Yeah, isn't it though? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a bitter pill. God damn. Yeah. That's rough. <laughs> that would just be that would just beat all if you know the last thing that anybody hears about the investigation before the whole thing goes dark for two months is uh, Manafort, you know, getting off on a mistrial or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So let's hope that's not where this ends up. <laughs> And so I guess the other thing rattling around is there have been a few things involving um, Roger Stone. Yeah. So one of his longtime advisors was subpoenaed and basically has chosen to say he's he's not doing it. He's not going to testify. So a judge has actually held him in contempt. Um, but like, didn't he learn from Nunberg? Like the <laughs> other one of Roger Stone's lackeys <laughs> to say the same yeah. phrase? Well, well, then to every person in the media at the same time. Yeah, and then giving every interview you could give. Yeah, while drunk. Say, has this guy been on <laughs> CNN today? Yeah. No, this guy, I think this guy's more like the real deal, like somebody who really knows something and is really still connected to Stone and, sure. you know, is trying not to talk. Um, meanwhile, they've also subpoenaed one of my favorite figures in this whole thing, Randy Credeco, who is... <laughs> He's a comedian, um, but who also does kind of like a political talk show. And, really? and what's been floating around about him for a while, he actually refused to testify to Congress, is who he refused to testify to. Um, but what's been floating around about him is that Stone has used him as a kind of channel to communicate with Assange. You don't say. I, I hadn't caught this one yet. This is yeah. wild. And he's just been subpoenaed. I, I've been under the impression that Roger Sto- that Stone's connection with Assange was basically direct. Like he was actually showing up at the embassy and hanging out, having dinner, that kind of thing. So there was some intermediaries involved as well. You know, additional communication. Yeah. Well, and I've never seen a really. I've seen some journalism that looked at this a little bit, but so he has certainly said things like there have been emails that have come out, like you know, I just had dinner with Assange. But yeah. meanwhile, when someone questions him about it, he's like, 
Couldn't have happened. I was in L.A. Surely you would be able to tell if I went to Ecuador. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know what <laughs> what the deal with that is. Okay, this guy uh, Credico, he's got he's got a bit of a history too. I guess uh, he's a perennial candidate in New York State. It looks like he uh, ran against uh, Chuck Schumer in 2010, mm. ran against uh, Bill De Blasio in 2013, and Cuomo in 2014. He runs in the Democratic primaries, and uh, typically it looks like he hits about two to three percent. So just kind of a cranky guy. Although he also headlines fundraisers for Republicans, so just oh shit, he's so he's ex- a stone plant in like New York Democratic primaries. Yeah, I <laughs> guess so. I mean, it seems like it's kind of a new. I'd have to look a little bit more into this, but it, the pattern looks like it's more like these kind of nuisance candidacies. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what he's really trying to do with it because you know the party politics in New York being what they are, he's going to be you know, rejected like a disease every time, I would think. And yeah, he comes up with one, two, three percent in most of these races where he's run. But, but if he really is just solidly a Roger Stone lackey, I bet you he's just the official mouthpiece for yeah. all of the fabricated dirt that Roger Stone makes about the candidate that they don't like that is that they think is gonna win. Yeah. And so every <laughs> year I bet you he just goes after one person. Exactly. Uh, gosh, yeah. So my understanding is that he's currently appealing the uh, ruling holding him in contempt, and so he's not actually in jail right now. Right, right. Yeah. So we will see. Let's hope they get some leverage on him because, uh, you know, Roger Stone, he was uh, say either my number one or my number two in the draft. <laughs> <laughs> Our our fantasy impeachment league, you know, he's yeah. right there up at the top for me. So well, and just last week they talked to the Hollywood madam, right? Oh yeah, who was also right. a longtime Stone associate. Yeah, you know, for such a conservative guy, he's a real cartoonish libertine. You know, <laughs> it's true, and and he's actually ideological. He's not like Trump, who was just kind of you know spouting off for years and years while doing what he wants. He's a guy who was uh, meaningfully trying to implement, you know, conservative governance across this country. But, yeah, he uh, lives like Caligula. Yeah, so, he's yeah. He's part of the party that didn't, that isn't with the religious right. It's not the moral conservative as see, just, you know, right. economic and totalitarian punishment part of conservative Yeah. Wild stuff. All right. So kind of, I guess on that front, uh, totalitarianism and uh, of un- intolerable uh, tyranny, uh, we've got some updates on uh, what's been happening on the Internet and the horrific suppression of Alex Jones, which is, Dark of day. course, the civil rights issue of our time. Uh, That's right. Truly. So... <laughs> True. Alex, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everyone who's listening has heard at least in some way of uh, who Alex Jones is. He's a conspiracy theorist and ultra right wing uh, media uh, mogul, I guess is what you could call him. You know, he's not really just a radio show host anymore. He's kind of got his whole little mini empire of uh, selling uh, 
survival kits for the apocalypse and everything else and uh, several different shows and just a whole media group that he set up working out of Texas. And most infamously, he uh, has been the leading voice on conspiracy theories concerning the uh, Sandy Hook shooting, uh, claiming that it never happened. And that everyone involved is lying. Everyone who says they're a victim is lying. Nobody was killed. It was all, quote, crisis actors. And it's caused a great deal of distress for the survivors and uh, family members of the victims. And he's been sued by a uh, number of uh, parents and other uh, survivors of victims who have been subjected to just horrific harassment by uh, fans uh, of uh, Jones over the last five years. I mean, the parents who've had to move and you know try and keep their locations hidden because they end up getting doxxed and their information published online. So yeah, they've uh, sued Jones for defamation. And they're actually, I think that's actually been some action in court this week. He's uh, made a motion to dismiss the case and that has not been ruled on yet. But uh, we'll see if that can proceed. I think at least on First Amendment grounds, I don't think Jones really has much of a case to get it thrown out. The uh, New York v. Sullivan statute or precedent is pretty clear on how this should be treated. Uh, these are people who aren't public figures. And so the the standard where it would have to be you know knowingly false and malicious just wouldn't really be applicable here. But yeah, so in... I think with the additional heat on Jones, there's been some pressure on a lot of the social media uh, networks where he's uh, propagated his shows to uh, deal with what has been in many cases been hate speech and harassment speech and just all around terrible behavior. And so both Facebook and I want to say YouTube have come out and and so you can't get him off iTunes anymore either. Correct. Are we on iTunes? I thought we might be. I think but... we are, yes. All right. We, we got to look. We, we actually don't listen to the show. We're scared of hearing what we sound like. That is completely uh, but... and hilariously true. I, yeah. I fully second. I've never listened to one episode <laughs> of our show. The only bit that I've listened to it is when I had to do some editing when I was the one recording. Right. So... We've got iTunes, and Alex Jones doesn't. So one Cascadian views, zero for InfoWars. Uh, <laughs> As though so, we yeah, need it's... to doubt ourselves whatsoever, we are, in fact, better than Alex Jones and Prison Planet. <laughs> 100%. That's right. So I guess the um, like one of the things that had been the tipping point on some of this is that he, recently on his show, he'd accused Mueller of being a pedophile, which is one of his favorite things to accuse um, left-leaning, and Mueller isn't even a left-leaning figure, but people who he thinks of as left-leaning figures actually believes they are international Satanist pedophile ring people. Um, So he kind of trotted out that standard accusation. And then then he said, you're going to get it or I'm going to die. And then he pantomimed shooting with his fingers. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't actually see the clip. That is some really outrageous behavior. And yeah, I, I can see why he's become much more toxic uh, due to you know stuff like that, because that is uh, actual threatening and incitement to violence. I think it's yeah. hard to say that it's not. Uh, 
So, yeah, the, the, I guess that has been the straw that's been too far for some of these social media networks, not all of them. Uh, most notably, he is still on Twitter. And not only that, but uh, the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, made a number of statements this week uh, about why uh, he was not going to take Jones off Twitter, uh, why he was going to keep his accounts there. And basically blaming the mainstream media saying, look, it's your job to fact check him. I'm just going to give him a neutral platform and he can say whatever he wants. And unfortunately that really does track with, uh, Twitter's history. Yeah. On these kind of circumstances. I mean, and they've tried and they've made very, very small infinitesimal changes that they do the big old ticker tape parade for just like Facebook just did. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, kind of like Facebook, it's, it's what they designed the platform to do. They deliberately designed a platform not to have these kinds of safeguards, not to have content monitors, not to have all of these things. And now, and now that people want them, they have kind of a crisis of identity about the corporation and their role because of course like especially the twitter guy is like uh, a pretty big libertarian from my recollection as well Um, yeah you know just like the zuck is like they're both like nouveau riche libertarians so i mean just totally detestable guys yeah well, I think what's really despicable here is that you know, I've heard a number of complaints over the years that Twitter has been willing to enforce standards in the past, but they've done so in a pretty uh, one-sided manner. You know, uh, I've seen like uh, socialist activists get temporarily banned for you know saying you know nasty things about Elon Musk. You know, so it just doesn't seem to be applied even-handedly in both directions, I think is totally one of the true. Yeah, that, really very noxious yeah. things about this. And yeah, or you say something about punching Nazis, and uh, then you're all you're now in violation of uh, you know Twitter's terms of service. But if you're Alex Jones and you right. spat hate for years and years and years, uh, none of it seems to matter. You're famous and rich so you get to keep your platform well and you know like youtube and facebook i think have both been hit for similar things like um Mm. on youtube it was about whether or not uh videos could be you know get ad revenue so you know like mentions of rape and sexual assault are one of those conditions that get you out of advertising money but what youtube didn't differentiate was people you know trying to inform and be activists against these things it was just you say the word you don't get ad revenue and facebook has had similar issues with like facebook groups and that's been an issue uh already going into this election as they're trying to dig out what groups are bot created and what's not like they're they can't differentiate very well between what to a normal human being seems like a pretty easy and detectable level of rhetoric difference yeah yeah i mean i appreciate 
that at least they're making some effort to not be a conduit for Nazis, but right, they're just not really. But if you also have people who say Nazis are bad, right, then you've still fucked up. Exactly. Exactly. Like what we need is the group of people who say Nazis are bad, and not the rest of the people who have other opinions about Nazis. <laughs> Just to be very vague about it. <laughs> but if you have other very opinions about Nazis, you are not wanted in any discussion here. I think that's probably the best definition you can get out there. There's other <laughs> opinions about Nazis, and when you get into that realm, <laughs> something's gone wrong. <laughs> Just a full stop, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there, there's an acceptable opinion, and then there's the rest. <laughs> The decent opinion. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, Jones has become a bit of a cause celebre on a number of social networks. Now they're you know, saying he's been silenced, it's censorship, and so on and so forth, which yeah, I what, didn't realize that uh, the state had nationalized our social media networks, and so the First Amendment applied to what they do, but... I awesome. know, right? And apparently that's that must be the real reason that Twitter hasn't had to do anything, is that Twitter's the new Freeland. He, it's still a corporate entity, you know? It's <laughs> not like the Socialist Republic of YouTube and the People's Book or anything, you know? <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. I guess the thing that galls me about this is we know they don't mean it. We know, for instance, from the NFL... They don't actually mean that there's an absolute right to free speech and that corporations should never violate it. Right? Yeah. They, they just don't want it when it happens to them. Exactly. Yeah. You know, bringing us back to, you know, the my favorite phrase that I've now stolen from Dan of, you know, every... Oh, Jesus, and now I lost it. Every accusation is a confession. Yes, there we go. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they, they want to suppress free speech. Well, or, you know, liberals want to suppress, suppress free speech, which is, of course, we don't want to see uppity football players uh, making us, you know, feel bad about uh, the fact that police kill black people without consequence. That kind of thing. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Oh, man, this is the most ridiculous timeline. And I don't know how the hell we're going to get out of it. Yes, that's an excellent segue to talk about the primaries. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. I guess hey. you know, maybe this is our shot, but I ray of hope. <laughs> ray of hope. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was a number of elections on Tuesday, and, of course, the most attention was on the one that was by far the least consequential, which was the special election in Ohio's 12th congressional district. You know, it was, to the extent it was important, it was more or less as a bellwether for what is happening or what's expected to happen in the fall elections. And turned out it was really close. Uh, it's a uh, very conservative district, and as of right now, I believe the Republican is leading by just under 1% of the vote. 
so, you know, about 1,500 votes, I think, out of uh, several hundred thousand that were cast. So how about that? That's uh, a good sign, you know, at least, you know, a good indicator for potential blue wave. But meanwhile, while that was going on, and other, other uh, primaries were happening, uh, kind of next in attention was uh, Michigan primaries uh, for governor and for Congress. Uh, there was a, a three-way race uh, for governor there between uh, the uh, I guess what you'd call more of a mainstream liberal candidate who ended up winning Gretchen Whitmer and then uh, the uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed uh, Abu El-Sayed. And then a third guy who was kind of purporting himself to be a super progressive, but the uh, impression I got was that he's kind of a fraud, uh, probably taking a good chunk of the vote away from El-Sayed, but uh, not really that committed to the cause. Uh, Sri Thenadar, who was just spending gobs and gobs of money, but ended up coming in third. And uh, let's see here. Um, what else was going on? Oh, yeah, there was also another primary where uh, another uh, DSA candidate ended up uh, winning in the uh, congressional race, and I believe that was for John Conyers' seat. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't have the name in front of me. Does anyone remember it off the tops of their heads? I want to say Tlaib. Does that sound right? Tlaib. Something like that, yeah. Um, Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib, yes. Uh, so she is a, uh, just to pull up the... Uh, general description of who she is. She's a former member of the Michigan House of Representatives. Uh, she was endorsed by, uh, again, by Bernie, uh, by AOC, and uh, she came out of a fairly tightly contested primary uh, for this seat uh, on top. Uh, at the same time, there was a special election to complete the uh, remainder of Conyers' term, which uh, she and second-place finisher uh Brenda Jones, they ended up flipping, which was kind of weird. Uh, Tlaib uh, won the primary to, which was effectively the general election because there is no Republican. It's a deeply liberal district. Uh, but uh, Jones won the special election by a couple percent. So she gets to be the congressperson for the next two months and then, or ah, four months, because I guess they're sworn in in January. And then Tlaib takes over in January uh, as the new congressperson for this district. And uh, already, I think that was kind of the big victory that was uh, celebrated uh, by progressives for the night. Uh, I think there was some nice uh, tweets and stuff out from AOC and some others that uh, this is kind of the start of or, uh, a uh, new, uh, what would you call it, a super progressive caucus? We have a progressive caucus already, but it's definitely the core for a uh, more, let's say, ideologically driven wing of the party. So, yeah, it's a pretty exciting result. Um, further south, uh, there was a couple of other primaries in M Missouri and in Kansas. Not much of a big, not really any big surprises in Missouri, but they did have a right to work initiative on the ballot, which just was absolutely crushed. 
Yeah, that was really that was really heartening to see. I was so happy to see that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's I mean, not it's been... something I expected even from the people of Missouri. Like, yeah. Well, I, th I guess you know, from what I understand, this was kind of a big, not really last stand, but kind of a uh, moment for labor to really flex its muscles and start trying to punch back after a string of losses going back uh, six or seven years, really, since the uh, since the recall of Scott Walker failed. It's just been kind of one disaster after another. I mean, several lost campaigns to organize uh, different plants in the American South, uh, some of them actually with uh, non-interference from uh, management in those instances, but just still coming up short coming up against the the anti-union culture of some of these places where they've been trying. And then, of course, a uh, month and a half ago, the Janus decision, which is going to have just disastrous effects for uh, public sector labor. So a welcome, a uh, welcome moral victory. Uh, well, not moral victory. It's a real victory that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a real well, one this time. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that you know, this state that was uh, just. They were going to crush labor, and uh, this bill did not, you know, end up did not go through. It was just crushed by a two to one margin, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Labor continues to hold on by its barest of fingernails. Yeah. Well, I think there have been a couple of things in the last few months, actually, where the particularly like the teachers' unions right. have shown up and really rattled some state governments. Right. There was the statewide strikes in West Virginia, in Arizona, and Oklahoma. Uh, and I guess what goes for victories in those states, I mean, these are actually pretty modest increases that they were fighting for, really. Uh, I want to say something in the neighborhood of 5%, uh, 2 to 3 you know, just uh, things, you know, the level of races that you would probably expect, especially in states that are already paying their teachers so poorly, and but uh, where the things have just been so choked off. By a very conservative government, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I'd say this was uh, kind of building on that. I, I would say that in response to Janice, in response to a lot of the threats, you're probably going to see a much more militant and activist organized labor, just because the threat is so very real right now, and it's been shown repeatedly that. There's so little upside in playing nice, in trying to establish the kind of labor peace that existed in the 1950s and 1960s that, you know, the other side just isn't interested in it anymore. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, yeah. they had a, you know, pretty easily exploitable labor still, so... Right. They were willing to make a few more concessions back then. Right. Well, and there was kind of this mutually shared prosperity for so long. You know, yeah, that as well. That, the you know, tax systems. That, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There was a commitment to uh, public sector spending and a commitment to uh, taxation of very high incomes that has been steadily. Mm -hmm tapering off since the uh, early 70s and just taking nosedive after nosedive for the last 20 years. 
So, yeah, that was good news. And then uh, just next door in Kansas, there is a nail biter on the Republican uh, primary for governor. Uh, Chris Kobach, the secretary of state, is running against the incumbent governor there. Uh, If they both lose, it would be great if they could both lose. Uh, but especially Kobach, who uh, has uh, just been this mm, kind of all-around figure of nastiness and racial division and attacks on civil rights for uh, more than a decade, really, before he uh, started rising to the top in Kansas state politics. Uh, he'd been uh, convincing states to adopt very harsh anti-immigrant legislation, states and municipalities, Um, then for the last few years, his cause has been uh, voter suppression. Uh, He was on uh, Trump's, hmm, excuse me, on his uh, voter fraud commission, which looked and looked and tried to find voter fraud somewhere, but it really couldn't and ended up shutting down for that. But, you know, not for lack of trying or, you know, trying to invent a problem of voter fraud. So, you know, just, I, I have mixed feelings a little bit about uh, how this election uh, would like, how I'd like to see it go, at least this primary, because I think the consensus has been that uh, Collier, the incumbent governor, would probably win easily. It's Kansas. It's a very Republican state. But Kobach would really struggle. On the other hand, though, See him as governor. It uh, it gives me flashbacks to 2016, where yeah, I was just gonna say, I was like, God, that phrase seems a little too familiar for me to be comfortable with it. Exactly. Like, oh, you know, he's crazy, so he probably won't make it in. Like, ooh, we can't say those words anymore. <laughs> we, we we lost the right to say those words. Yeah. Do not, yeah, do not uh, expect too much of the voter because they will live down. They will live beneath your expectations. Yeah, like, yeah, this is 2018. Kobach wins like 80% of the vote if he makes it through the primary. Yeah. Like, he's got to go down. Yeah, it's, that's just a scary, scary state. And he's a scary guy. And the last thing I think we anyone would want to see is uh, for his type of politics to be elevated and uh, given as something to be emulated even more than it already is. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So the last bit on elections was uh, here in our backyard in Washington state. Uh, We don't have Brock to bring up Oregon, but Oregon isn't up right now. This is a Washington show today. And we had some really, really interesting results from this primary. And I think probably the, in my book, at least, this is the scariest results for Republicans of the night, actually, when I really got digging into it. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, 10 congressional districts here. Uh, we're reputed to be a pretty liberal state. And, you know, Democrats do generally win the president. I think they always actually. The last time a Democrat lost Washington state for president probably would have been 1984. Uh, but, uh, Ever since then, it's been reliably Democrat for uh, Democratic for presidential candidates, and we generally elect Democratic governors. We did have a uh, Republican senator as late as 2000, but uh, you know the image of Washington is it was a very liberal and Democratic state. But 
We also do have some very close elections, uh, especially for governor. Well, Democrats generally win when the seat is open. It's very close. I think uh, in 2012, Inslee won by just a couple percentage points. In 2004, Christine Gregoire beat uh, Dino Rossi, actually, who's come back from you know the political wasteland to try again in the uh, 8th Congressional District. But you know, she beat him by just a matter of like 100 votes or so. It was extremely close. Uh, and our legislature for the last decade has been 50-50. So not quite a uh, – it's not exactly California or New York where you know the Democratic Party is truly dominant on every level. But these results have been astonishing. You know, so we've got you know, 10 congressional districts, and four of them have been controlled by Republicans you know, at least since 2011. But uh, the 8th Congressional District now uh, is a toss-up, I would say, to lean Democratic. Uh, the vote that came in, Rossi got about 43%. And the uh, Democrats all conv- combined came up to about 51 to 52% uh, by the latest count. So that's a state, uh, a district rather, that we'd expected uh, to be a toss-up. But it's uh, leaning much more Democratic than we'd anticipated. Because uh, you know Rossi was running basically alone, and the Democrats are fighting it out. It looks like uh, Kim Scryer is coming out, or is, is looking like she's going to be the one who wins. Although it's still very close between her and uh, Jason Ritterizer. But uh, two other districts which we hadn't really expected to be competitive are neck and neck. Uh, in the third congressional district, which is down by Portland, uh, it covers most of Vancouver. Uh, kind of the Southern Olympic Peninsula and a little bit into South Central. Uh, that's represented by Jamie Herrera Butler. And it was, you know, I think it's 51-49 is the current uh, breakdown of how that came out. So just barely Republican. And that's definitely going to be extremely competitive. And then out on the east side, out by Spokane, uh, Kathy McMorris' Rogers is... Uh, I think she had 47% herself, and then there's another 5% going to other Republicans and the, quote, Trump populist party candidate, and 47% for the Democrat. So I was really surprised by that. I was shocked by yeah. what was nearly a 50-50 vote in Spokane. Exactly. And... That's also translated down to the state legislative level. You know, I mentioned before that the legislature's basically been 50-50 for years. The Democrats barely control both chambers, but up until last year, Republicans had the Senate. But all of these, so many of these legislative districts, of the 48 House seats that are currently controlled by Republicans, what am I saying? Yeah, 48 House seats, 19 by my last count, are either, you know, potentially lean Democrat or are toss-up. You know, I'd say about 11 of them are lean Democrat and then another eight are toss-up. So it's amazing. You know, they've got the potential. If this, if the wave is as big as they say, they could lose nearly half of their caucus in the House. And then there's another half dozen Republicans in the Senate who are in severe danger, who are in the same kind of zone to uh, potentially lose their seats just based on the primary results. Um, 
And I guess just, you know, this is kind of a quick moment to explain for those of you out there who aren't as familiar with uh, the Washington primary and how it works. We've got a couple of things going on. We've got a mail-in election. All of our our elections are conducted by mail. So participation tends to be relatively high, even for the primary. And it also tends to track very closely with the general election results. You go back to 2004 when we first started doing this. And it usually comes within a couple percentage points of the combined two-party vote for you know the primary to the general election results. So if you're a Republican and you suddenly find yourself eight percentage points behind your uh, Democratic opponents in the primary, you're in real trouble for the general election. And happily, that is the case with the uh, local complete asshole <laughs> uh, I shouldn't say that, I, but it's Friend basically true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Friend of the show, Doug Erickson, uh, the state senator from North Whatcom County, who has just got a long list of terrible things that he's done. Uh, ones that come right off the top of my head is uh, uh, basically uh, taking a check to serve as the senator from you know the North Whatcom County while not showing up to work and spending all of his time in Washington, D.C., working for the Trump administration. Uh, that was one thing. Oh. Another was uh, uh, last year after all of the uh, uh, Standing Rock protests, and there was a protest here in Bellingham over it, he uh, introduced legislation to arrest protesters, make it a big crime. So he's, Oh, he was that guy. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I was looking it up. I wanted to be sure to say the right thing. I wasn't sure if he was a sponsor of a run over protesters with your car bill or arrest protesters. And it oh, was the arrest I, I get what your pause was. I thought your pause was about calling him an asshole. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, definitely. Like, either way, certifiably, yeah. like, undeniably, this man is an asshole. But now I see what you wanted to be. <laughs> exactly. You wanted not to slander him about what flavor of asshole is this man? Okay. Yes. Yeah. He, he wants to repress speech with the long arm of the law, not with vehicular manslaughter. So that's, <laughs> right. that's a, where a he small but appreciable difference. Exactly. So yeah, he's running eight points down in from the uh, primary results right now from the combined Democratic vote. So hopefully that will be enough to. Yeah, you know, we'll see if that uh, margin holds in the general election. I think there's lots of good reasons to think it should. Uh, the so, county has certainly Dan, been changing a lot. This. Uh, yeah. Have you seen anybody kind of shooting out any ideas about why the big change has happened? I mean, well, I mean, you know, because like the districts here are still gerrymandered like the oh, rest yeah. of the country not as bad as some states but like we're still a gerrymandered state like everybody else we're still statistically leaning red despite how our population's voting like yeah i mean i was uh, gonna say this turnout wasn't that big but looking at it it's it's 38.39 percent that's i mean that's pretty sweet for it for a primary yeah it's really good for a, i think that actually probably exceeded the the present primary uh in 2016 by some amount uh i don't have the figures right in front of me like but the I think... national primary you mean well no i mean uh oh, in like 2016 washington, washington state, state oh primary. really yeah let's yeah. see here just a second 
I think we could figure that out real quick. So at least as of right now, we've got 1.6 million votes uh, turned in. And then in 2016, say, in the primary, there were... Uh, just a second. Yeah, it's taken a few minutes to load, but... Wow, okay. So we're not even done counting yet. Uh, there's 1.6 million votes cast uh, this time around uh, that have been counted so far, and just uh, over uh, one or just under 1.4 million cast in 2016. So we've already wow. exceeded the 2016 final count. Okay, and... well, then that might then I guess speak to answer my question about why, yeah, why we're seeing a big switch because I mean, you know. I, I expect this kind of blue shift to continue to concentrate in population areas. You know, that's a lot demographically what they're saying is going on in our country, this particularly mm -hmm. with our age range and more progressive voters being drawn into urban areas. But I mean, this is a pretty solid spread all across the state. We're seeing movement yeah. seats that, you know, like you said on, on the Facebook page that we haven't seen in just under 30 years exactly so I mean, well, and this is a huge move in the state to kind of reflect uh what the nation generally thinks about washington um, yeah and so yeah i'm just really been curious as to if you've heard any other ideas as to why that's happening or is it just kind of just a bigger turnout in general some of it's probably a bigger turnout in general. I think there's a lot more candidates that are out there and more competitive, at least more more live candidates, I'd say, are in the mix. You know, I've only lived in Washington for five years, so the elections in 14 and 16 are the ones I know best. And in those, you saw a lot more uh, instances where uh there just wasn't an actual contest on the ballot where, you know, the Democrats didn't put anyone up in a particular district. Oh, yeah, that's right. I guess you're right. Yeah, 2014 yeah. was like that. You're right. Exactly. There were a whole bunch, there were a lot more spots on the ballot where there was no contest. Yeah. Uh, I want to look here at uh, the 5th District, for instance. Uh, there was a candidate on the ballot, but uh, the, there was a Democrat who pulled like less than 30% of the vote. So clearly that wasn't much of a challenge in the 5th Congressional District. And then in the 3rd, uh, looks like it was about 40% of the vote that that was taken or a little bit under. So yeah, just these relatively weak to not particularly seasoned candidates that they were running in these seats. And I think part of that also was just the lack of enthusiasm that comes when you're the party with the White House and, you know, compared to uh, where the energy is, it's usually going to be on the other side. But even then, there just was not that great a turnout in any of these seats. And when you look back at, you know, say 2014, uh, I think you're looking at uh, – maybe you know 60 percent of the turnout that we got this time in most of these elections oh wow yeah just much much lower uh, and yeah so when people when there's a live candidate and there's motivation whether it's you know trying to get someone in there to oppose trump or you know in some way 
act as a check on him, then yeah, you'd get a much stronger participation. And so you see, uh, you know, dead even races in Spokane. And that's actually one of the areas that are particularly ripe for change in the legislative seats, actually. The, it's the concentration right in the area around Spokane. And then there's also a bit, of course, here in North Whatcom County, all the uh, Republican representatives and senators are running behind uh, their opponents, you know, up in you know the north part of the county here in the 42nd district. And then it's also concentrated a bit in the south and on the Olympic Peninsula as well. So, yeah, just these areas that had been trending Republican are suddenly reversing and very hard. Hmm. I mean, I wonder if that is part of that demographic swing anyway, being yeah. particularly, you know, you all up in Bellingham and Spokane area, both college areas, both. Hmm. I mean, Spokane has a huge elderly population. Yep. Um, I don't know that about Bellingham. The one time yeah. I was through there, I wouldn't say it offhand, even though it definitely had a lot of the kitschy shops that suggest that it has kind of an undercurrent of geriatric population. But yeah, what, how big is the elderly population there, would you say? We are consistently listed in trade magazines as one of the top places to retire in the country. So oh, okay then. Um, Bellingham has huge numbers of retirees and college students. Then I'm willing to take a pretty easy step and say that a lot of this is going to be some of that demographic change yeah yep well and i guess particularly to bellingham uh i think a housing market has kind of chased people from the 40th district which has always been pretty consistently liberal and has pushed a lot of the growth and a lot of the search for cheaper rent further north into the 42nd district yeah that, so jeez I mean, man even yeah. i've thought about moving up there for cheaper rent yeah but yeah it, it's gone to it's around 1600 a month now for a two-bedroom apartment and it's just chasing people north up towards ferndale towards blaine closer and closer to the canadian border which up till now have just been you know farms and there's an oil refinery oh, gotcha but yeah, so they're building more and more apartment complexes on that side of the county. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of younger and poorer people moving north and people that are more likely to vote Democratic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that about covers the uh, oh, the only other notes that I had. Uh, as far as interesting things happening in terms of the primary here, uh, the last one is in the 9th Congressional District, which is one actually I did not expect. But another uh, Justice Democrat candidate uh, looks like they're going to be making it into the top two. I kind of I read about this candidate, Sarah Smith, uh, on the eve of the election. Oh, yeah, yeah, she did make yeah. it into the top two. That's right, yeah. Exactly. You know, she was predicting that, you know, she could thought she could get around 27%, and she ended up hitting it pretty much dead on. So, yeah, the Repub it's not, you know, a district that Republicans can generally win. So, you know, yeah, it's not much district. of a loss for them that they're locked. Oh, I thought you were in the uh, 7th with uh, Pramila Jayapal. You know, but. I thought so, too. And I know that I was two years ago when I voted huh. for Pramila Jepal. Uh 
and then I found both Jess and I's ballots. We had the opportunity this time around to vote for Sarah Smith, and I, wow. I was like, "Well, wait a second. Like, okay, sure. I'd been I read about that race. Yeah, all right. This is cool. We'll vote for." Her. And then a couple of days later, we were looking at the district map, and I was like, "Oh yeah, so this is our district." So I was like, "Wait, but that's <laughs> not who I got to vote for to get like three wow. days ago." Like. Uh, so yeah. I don't know. Either somebody screwed up and placed us in a different district, or they just slightly moved the district lines by probably like five blocks uh, last year. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't think it's been moved. So yeah, I think it must have just been an error. Like they kind of assumed you're. Yeah, I guess you're right on that line because yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, I think it's mostly uh, south, uh, south Seattle, and yeah, uh, exactly. kind of the area. Uh, going down to Tacoma and then a whole bunch of uh, Bellevue and the east side of the lake, which uh, is a district that has been trending more liberal, certainly. So, I mean, the, the comparison is to uh, uh, NS, uh, you know, AOC, but yeah, and it's a district that's moving that way. It's no longer majority white. Uh, it's like 49% white now, uh, about 20% Asian. So it's been moving in a uh, more progressive uh, direction and you know the kind of place where candidates like that can be pretty successful i think she'll have a real uphill fight against uh you know congressman smith you know also named smith adam smith uh wealth of nations you know all that but uh it's <laughs> interesting that that's going to be the battle lines now between more uh i guess old smith off Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Between more conventional liberalism and then the new, uh, I guess, more economically tuned uh, yeah, social justice. I mean, because even though uh, Adam Smith, Mister Wealth of Nations, doesn't pop up on my radar, I was trying to, I was thinking about him today, and I was like, I want to say what little I do know of him is that he's pretty decently progressive. Yeah. Just that she is. Even more so, and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." I mean, exactly. Sure, why not? And if this the district can like support the that, then great. Voting scenario for me, it's like it's win-win no matter what. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of th this is the blueprint that that AOC is laying out there for folks. I, I really see it. This is where there's going to be some real success in terms of uh, getting these ideas closer to the mainstream. Uh, making it as a viable wing of the Democratic Party that has some real influence nationwide is if you can you know, start getting these candidates into these uh, seats that you know, Republicans never win. So they might as well be making a very strong argument right. to you know, bring right. some real right. economic yeah. justice to this country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if everybody in a district is a diehard liberal, why not give them everything that that could possibly mean yeah and why not periodically just even use it as a left as a test bed for just our real crazy shithouse ideas because we need to test them out to make sure that they're going to work and to realize where they're not going to work and how they exactly work. you gotta you gotta dream big you, you have to experiment to, yeah. to figure out what a good policy is going to look like Exactly. And it's great that we've got these seats where someone can go out there and, you know, campaign on something like, you know, a jobs guarantee or abolishing ICE 
uh, universal health care, you know, whatever you can think of, and not have to worry that they're going to lose their seat to some Republican saying, oh, no, no, how are you going to pay for it? You're going to turn us into Venezuela because the voters say, great. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think All there's right. also maybe something generational in this. Like there's a, you know, because I'm part of this generation, so I identify there's a whole generation of liberals that have learned to not act or talk to liberal. Mm-hmm. So, so that we can somehow still seem palatable. Uh, business uh, friendly liberals. Yeah. 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 The third one. And who are not necessarily ideologically that far from the uh, bolder progressives, but the bolder progressives just don't have that fear in them. Right. Well, they don't remember, you know, Mondale 84. Right. <laughs> Or so, yeah. Yeah. I, so I do I just don't have anything else to lose there you go I mean ultimately that's what it comes down to me like I what is the point of playing it safe for the sake of Mondale we've already lost most of the kingdom it's yeah and and here we are, and it's 2018, and Trump's the president. So yeah, we've got to start fighting back. And uh, yeah, like we, we've got a lot of ground to rewin and 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 recover. Yeah. I think before we start to worry about our you know tone policing our ideology right now. Yeah, I mean we're up Bring against us back the wall. To our earlier conversation, Nazis, good, bad is now a, an question. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yes. So, just as a as a pleasant reminder to our audience, there is Nazis are bad, and then <laughs> other opinions about Nazis that we do not ex- accept. Yeah, and, and I think yeah. To the, the the retort is you know we'll worry about you know whether or not it's a good thing to nominate socialists when Republicans worry about whether it's a good thing to nominate Nazis because clearly they don't care. Like a very fair trade, Dan. That that seems very fair. <laughs> exactly. All right. So on that note, I think we've uh, probably covered it all pretty well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess it's, we'll do the uh, looking forward uh, next week. I'm pretty sure I know what Dan's going to talk about. Uh, I am. And so I'm just going to join you. Uh, so we'll let Chris go first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I um, I am actually looking forward to our primary, which is this upcoming Tuesday. And I've got my eye on a couple of things. Uh, one is that our governor has, which you typically wouldn't see for a first-term governor, he actually has himself a primary challenge because of his vote on uh, the gun control measures. Mm-hmm. So... It'll be interesting to kind of gauge how much damage has been done to him on the Republican side by that. Um, on on the Democratic side in the gubernatorial primary, there's this kind of tradition. All our state offices are two-year terms, and there's this kind of tradition that you don't really challenge someone on their first re-election. <laughs> you know, you just kind of <laughs> wait and give them another chance. That's um, so cute and, like, just wow. downright neighborly. I love Vermont. <laughs> Give him a shot, you know? Yeah, yeah I mean, everybody knows you're going to fuck up your job a little bit on that first time. So they're like, hey, first two years are free, kid. You, you got this, Rooks. <laughs> because of that, the um, Democratic primary, you know, everybody who would have been a serious contender has kind of sat it out. So it's like this island of misfit toys on the Democrat gubernatorial primary. Yeah. Combined with the fact that this might actually be a race that's up for grabs, 
So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And the last thing I've got my eye on is that in our state house district, uh, the guy who was the incumbent Democrat for like 17 years or so has resigned. And so it's been a very active, it's like the most competitive primary they've had. There are four candidates and because of the groups that we've been involved in locally, Abby and I actually personally know three of them. So <laughs> I'm going to be very interested to see what happens with that primary. Right on. Yeah, yeah, that's such a weird one that's going on right now. I, mean, my, I think from what I've read, uh, Phil Scott is actually, he's upside down in terms of his uh, primary, uh, his uh, overall approval. He's actually more popular among Democrats than he is among right. Republicans right now. Which right. is a really weird place for him to be. But, huh, that is, that's some odd stuff. Uh, All right. Yeah. So, Jay, I'm not sure what you were thinking of. Oh, I'd say okay. go for it. Let's, you know, what are we doing? I assume you, you were going to talk about Better Call Saul. Oh, hey, yeah, that started. Yes. I actually thought it started this week, and then I was like looking this up, all like, oh yeah, and I've already missed the first episode. So totally, honestly, actually, the joke is on me. Up. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I uh, kind of caught the first episode. I had to TiVo it because well, not TiVo, but you know, yeah. DVR, you know, not the corporate term for it. But yeah, it's it's great. You know, it's off to another you know solid start. Uh, the aftermath of uh, what happened with, you know, spoilers, uh, Chuck and his lantern at the end of season three. Yeah, right. So, I was going to rewatch the third season before this one started up, but I did find a really good, a really helpful recap. Yeah. So I'm pretty well caught up. But yeah, oh man, so looking forward to this show. It's, it's fantastic. I felt yeah, like it during the second season, but definitely during the third season, it's totally surpassed Breaking Bad for me. Yeah, it, it's become its own thing now, and it's great. And it really added so much more depth to a character who was kind of on the edge of comic relief during Breaking Bad. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's great. Yeah. I think I think we've got this one in the bag, guys. Yeah. Nice. So All right. From the People's Republics of Cascadia and Vermont. <laughs> Goodies. Have a good week. <laughs> Take care, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. Later.